oil giants, they're not really innovating in how to better produce oil and gas. They're mm-hmm. taking their investment dollars and they're pouring it into hydrogen. You know, BP, Shell, Exxon, Chevron, they're all pouring lots of money into hydrogen projects. So even those guys are dedicating their investment resources to figuring out how to better mass produce, more cost-effectively mass produce clean energies. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how was your fourth? Uh, good Fourth of July weekend, man. Friends, family, barbecue, meets. It was a good, good time. It's nice and sunny over here. Got to use the pool. So if I got a little color, that's why. I'm happy about it, though. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> Any good fireworks? Um, listen, we have, we have a, my, my two-year-olds at the house, um, my brother and sister visiting. Um, so they have two kids. When you have three kids under the age of three, going to see fireworks (laughs) is a bit of a, bit of a struggle. So instead what we did is we went on YouTube and threw on some fireworks from the (laughs) National Mall in DC and they thought it was the coolest thing ever put them to bed and uh, watched a movie. So that was that was our 4th of July. Very low-key Monday. <laughs> well, it sounds like everybody had an exciting weekend, and I'm excited to dive into our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcasts. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Ton of things to cover. Let's dive right in. Uh, Starting off this week, uh, I want to talk about oil. Um, Oil has continued to crash, and it's looking to break below $100. Uh, Can you explain real quick what's going on there? And again, some of the hydrogen plays that are being made in the oil industry right now, and why investments from the biggest oil companies in the world suggest that they kind of are agreeing with the hydrogen boom. Right. So oil actually has broken below 100. Uh, last okay. check, we were at 99.2, 99.3, somewhere around there. So that's a pretty big, you know, critical psychological level for oil. Um, yes, oil has been crashing. We're now in, you know, more than 20% below where we peaked out at. So oil is technically in a bear market. The uptrend that it had seems to be broken. Looks like it formed a double top on the chart at around that, you know, lower 120s level. It's, you know, let me pull up this chart for you, Aaron, because I know we've showed our subscribers this chart before. Um, Let me just get it going for you. Um, And this chart compares the oil market of 2007, 2008, 2009 to the oil market of 2021, 2022, presumably into 2023. Um, And the last time we showed it to you, the two were very, very, very similar. Let me screen share. Let me know when it's incoming for you, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Up, oh, coming in now. Cool. Cool. Yep. Last time All we right, showed okay. it to you, we were right about here. 
So the orange yep. line is the 2007-2009 oil bull market. The blue line is the 2021-2022 oil bull market. So as you can see, they tracked each other. I mean, not 100% correlation, but dang near close to it. It's close. For the, it's definitely for the close. entire ride up. Last time we, we, we showed you this chart for the first time and oil was right about here. This is where we were. Mm -hmm. And we're saying, okay. okay, right around this time is when things started to go really, really, really poorly for the 2008 oil bull market. This is the second half of 2008 right here. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, we're here. Look at these charts. Pretty strongly <laughs> implies we're going to start doing this. And indeed, yep. we have started doing this. Now, it's not just that these two squiggly lines are lining up. This was the first half of 2008, and this was the second half of 2008. Mm -hmm. The first half of 2008 was all about, okay, there are shortages around the world. The economy is slowing, but the shortage problem is much bigger than the economic slowdown problem. So what you had is you had a big run on commodities. Commodity prices mm -hmm. surged. Oil prices surged. Stocks struggled. They were down about 20% in the first half of 28, or 2008. So... You had all that going on. And the second half of 2008, all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, you know that shortage problem we were talking about? Forget that. We got a massive mm -hmm. recession coming. The recession <laughs> hit. Commodity prices collapsed. Oil prices collapsed. Stocks took another leg lower. Boom. Like that. Same story here. Blue line. First half of 2022. What has it been all about? Shortages, shortages, shortages. Not enough oil, not enough commodities, not enough metals, mm -hmm. not enough of this, not enough of that. Uh, you saw stocks drop about 20% in the first half of 2022. You saw oil rise about 50%, same as it did in the first half of 2008. But guess what's happening now? The market is shifting from inflation fears to recession fears. And as we're making mm -hmm. that, oil is following the exact same trajectory as it did in 2008. So I think from that perspective, Aaron, we are getting a bona fide repeat of 2008 in the commodities markets, including oil. Commodities were the first to break down wheat. Remember how wheat was this huge, big thing? Um, mm -hmm. You know, because Russia is, is the breadbasket of Europe. Yeah. It came offline. Yeah. Wheat prices soared. Well, I mean, I'm checking right now on my terminal, and I see wheat down 22% over the past month, and it is off. Let me see. Let me get the right number for you. It is off 58% from its recent highs in 2022. Mm -hmm. um, sugar is down 15% from recent highs. Soybeans down 19%. Cotton's down 43%. Corn's down 33%. Um, uh, oil we just talked about is now down more than 20 Nat gas is down about 20 So we're seeing coffee's down about 15 We're seeing across aluminum's down 65 Copper's down 35 we're seeing across the board of commodities wipeout. Mm -hmm. And you only get those commodity wipeouts uh, when the markets shift to a very recessionary type trade. You're seeing yields collapse. And so the market is now fully embracing the very real reality that the base case outcome here is a recession either in the back half of 2022 or 2023, or we might may already be in one. The Atlanta Fed GDP tracker is now down in the negative territory. So that's the story behind what's happening on oil. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, it was so honestly mind-numbingly simple because mm -hmm. it was literally a repeat of 2008. I, I remember one night when I first started coming up with this thesis of short oil and I was like, okay, I, I created that chart. 
they, the lines were lining up. I was like, well, let's see if the sentiment lines up too. So I just Googled oil May 2008, oil April mm-hmm. 2008, oil June 2008, just to see what people were saying about it back then. They were mm-hmm. talking about supply shortages. They were talking mm-hmm. about economic demand still being pretty strong. They were talking about why oil is going to go to 150, 200. People were talking about, you know, there were all the same rhetoric that you have today. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all you literally had to do is control F, Libya, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> and replace yeah. it with Russia. And boom, it was the same article. You could have copy and pasted that article in 2022, and it would have made the exact it would have made the same sense. And so mm-hmm. I think the 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 big picture here is that oil just doesn't do well in recessions. Okay, mm-hmm. oil always drops more than 40 percent in recessionary periods. The one time it didn't, or the few times it didn't, were in the 1970s during an era of stagflation. Much different era than we have today. We're not going to get that outcome right now. Not to mention, even if we did get stagflation, it probably doesn't mean oil prices are going to stay that high because back then oil demand per capita was significantly higher. There were no viable alternatives. If we do get in a world where stagflation is a big problem and where oil prices stay persistently high against the backdrop of really slow economic demand, that's going to create a mass exodus away from fossil fuels towards the clean energies, and that's going to cause Mm -hmm. the demand destruction. So you're either going to get demand destruction from oil or in oil from either a recession or from high prices destroying the demand. So mm-hmm. one way or another, you're going to get demand destruction here. We're getting it through a recession. It's happening a lot sooner than a lot of people expected, but it's happening at the exact same timeline that we said it was going to happen because of this, yep. this chart. Obviously. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we are. And that's how I think about oil today. I think we still got a ways to fall. As yeah. I'm looking right now, we're about to crack 99. Um, I think we go to 90. I think we go to 80. I think we go to 70. I think we go to 60. I think this is a falling knife at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Does that mean it won't bounce every once in a while? I think it will. But I think over the next six months, we are going to see oil prices collapse towards levels nobody thought was fathomable outside of us and City. City is uh, very bearish on oil. They have a, an mm-hmm. oil bear over there that's been very good. And I think he has a call for $65 oil, and I think he's going to be spot on. And so mm-hmm. I think that it's a very contrarian call that's going to play out exactly as as we expect it to. So, um, yeah, the short oil thesis is, is it's been working so far. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you talked a little bit about how alternative energy is going to start influencing this as well. Is alternative energy going to see the same kind of uh, influences that oil does when it comes to its price as it becomes more uh, usable, more dominant in the energy sectors? You know, see, the, the thing, the, the difference in the, in the pricing of these two things is that oil and fossil fuels, they don't have a positive learning curve. Well, mm-hmm. fossil fuels have not gotten cheaper over time. Like, the more we've used them, the more we've produced of them, the more we have of them, they haven't gotten cheaper. They've gotten more expensive, actually. They have negative mm-hmm. learning curves. You look at clean energy, solar, hydrogen, uh, electric batteries, whatever it may be. Those things have very positive learning curves. The more we use of them, the more we produce them, the more we learn about them, the cheaper they become. You know, we now are this year, we're going to see a bunch of twenty-five dollars to $35,000 electric cars. Five years ago, that was completely unfathomable. Now, mm-hmm. installing solar, 10 years ago, installing solar was something only the super rich could afford to do. Now you're seeing solar pop up on a lot of homes and you're seeing solar pop up on, um, 
all new home constructions in California. So it's like only, almost becoming a prerequisite. Like the cost efficiencies have reached a point of it being able to be a prerequisite for new home constructions in California. That's a pretty impressive milestone. So mm-hmm. that's the difference in the pricing of these things. Clean energies have a proven track record of getting cheaper, whereas mm-hmm. fossil fuels do not. And the reason for that is because, well, there's two. One, fossil fuels are non-renewable. So if supply and demand always determine price at the end of the day, then the supply of fossil fuels is always going down. So you're always going to have some supply there, some supply constraint there that's going to keep prices somewhat elevated relative to usage. And then uh, renewables, obviously, that you don't have that problem. There is an infinite number of solar power we can produce, and there's an infinite mm-hmm. uh, number of, or volume of hydrogen power we can produce. So you don't really have that going on over there. And then number two is that there is a lot of innovation going on in battery science, in cathode manufacturing, um, in uh, you know PV, solar panel uh, construction, in the mining of these things. That's where all the innovation is being dedicated. And even the oil giants, they're not really innovating in how to better produce oil and gas. They're mm-hmm. taking their investment dollars and they're pouring it into hydrogen. You know, BP, Shell, Exxon, Chevron, they're all pouring lots of money into hydrogen projects. So even those guys are dedicating their investment resources to figuring out how to better mass produce, more cost-effectively mass produce clean energies. So all the investment dollars, all the innovation resources are being dedicated to clean energies, and that's another reason why they're benefiting from positive learning curves, whereas fossil fuels simply are not. Um, And to your point earlier at the top of this, you asked about the hydrogen investments and yeah, mm-hmm. so big oil is making massive bets on hydrogen. And the reason they're doing that is because, well, in my opinion, they are the most well-suited to create and distribute hydrogen. Because mm-hmm. hydrogen mm-hmm. is more like, it's, it, it's, it's molecular stuff. It's dealing with molecules. Mm-hmm. And that is what oil and natural gas are. So their scientists and engineers are already well suited to deal with hydrogen. Not to mention hydrogen can be pumped into natural gas pipelines. It can mm-hmm. be pumped into gas stations and used to refuel in the same way that gas is pretty much. I mean, not one for one, but close enough. Um, it can be put into big crates and shipped across oceans like oil or shipped on trains like oil. So the logistics and the science behind hydrogen and the distribution of hydrogen is very similar to the logistics science and distribution behind fossil fuels. And so that's why these fossil fuel giants are shifting towards hydrogen, not solar and not electric batteries, but hydrogen, because they view that as if and when oil does die, hydrogen is going to be its replacement. Um, electric mm-hmm. batteries will help in certain areas. Um, uh, uh, solar will help in certain areas. Wind will help mm-hmm. in certain areas. But hydrogen is going to be sort of the, the real oil killer. So that's why you're seeing big oil get into that game. So, again, what factors will, are we going to see that would affect hydrogen prices moving forward the same way that we've seen, you know, the past uh, incidences affect oil prices? Yeah, so the, the hydrogen prices are all in the electrolyzer price. So the way you produce hydrogen, right, is hydrogen is, you know, periodic table, number one, most abundant element in the universe. But it doesn't exist on its own on the planet Earth. It's weird. It's, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's such an irony of hydrogen. It's the most abundant element, yet it doesn't exist on its own. Uh, where mm-hmm. does it exist more abundantly? Well, H2O, water, right? Two hydrogen mm-hmm. atoms, one oxygen. So what you have to do is a process called electrolysis where you basically split those atoms. And then you mm-hmm. take the water and you take out the oxygen and you're left with hydrogen. 
That's mm-hmm. the process of creating hydrogen energy. That electrolysis process is the bulk of the expense of producing hydrogen. Um, where specifically the cost is in the electrolyzer itself. So mm-hmm. that benefits from um, economies of scale as we make more electrolyzers. We've seen costs for electrolyzers plunge over the past okay. several years. They're expected to continue to keep plunging. And there's going to be innovations in how we distribute hydrogen and stuff like that, how we make hydrogen fuel cells for, for trucks and whatnot that are going to benefit mm-hmm. those costs. But at the end of the day, the biggest cost reduction driver here is a reduction in electrolyzer costs. And that's what's going to help get hydrogen costs to very, very low and affordable levels. Well, as we can kind of continue the conversation on alternative energy and kind of pick up a little bit from last week, uh, I want to go a little bit into the China EV policy that we talked about last week. Um, Some updates there. You know, last week we talked about this policy that sets up favorably for EVs and specifically Chinese EVs, uh, NEO in particular. Is this policy actually making an impact? I know it's only been a week, but can you update us on the latest data that's being released here? Yeah, sure, Aaron. So I actually have another chart here for you, and we'll screen share once again. We've got a lot of screen shares today, guys. A lot of screen <laughs> shares. We love them. You got the charts. Why not show them? Um, okay, so here we are. You got it, Aaron, in front of you? Yep. Okay, cool. This is, so again, a couple, we showed you the exact same chart a couple weeks ago uh, without mm-hmm. the most recent data point over here. Sure. This is the China's PMI, so purchasers, uh, purchase manufacturer um, index, purchasing purchaser okay. manager index. Sorry, uh, it basically asks all the manufacturers in China how are business conditions right now. A reading above fifty indicates expansion. Um, a reading below fifty indicates contraction. So all this okay. is expansion up here. All this is contraction down here. Now Got you can it. see that this has loosely tracked. The um, electric vehicle index, the Kensho electric vehicle index, which is basic, the best proxy for EV stocks in the market. Um, And that's because 60%, you can see that it goes up here, correlates to the rise in Mm -hmm. EV stocks right around when it peaked, this peaked back here in in late 2020. You Mm -hmm. know, EV stocks a couple months later, ever since it's been in a pretty consistent downtrend. EV stocks have been in a pretty consistent downtrend, but now we're starting to see it bounce, right? And it's back into expansion territory right here. This is a pretty sharp V mm-hmm. bounce. Yep. If this continues, this is going to U-turn. EV stocks are going to U-turn. And why okay. is that? Again, back to the, the core thesis, 60% of EV battery manufacturing is done in China. So mm-hmm. if China's factories are down, then that means 60% of the battery manufacturing capacity in the world is down or limited, is handcuffed. Mm-hmm. If that is rebounding, then 60% of the battery manufacturing capacity in the world is rebounding, is coming back, is uh-huh. improving. And that's going to lead to improving trends for EV stocks. So I think that that data to me tells me, hey, and that the most recent data was at 50.2 reading. It's an improvement from the previous reading. So month over month, we're up. The non-manufacturing PMI is also up. So China is like this anomaly in the world right now. Everybody okay. else's economies, they're going down. They're declining. Mm-hmm. If you take the derivative of economic data, it is negative. Everything is decelerating. But mm-hmm. in China, things are actually improving because they just had a wave of COVID-19 lockdowns. They pulled back that wave. So now you're getting natural improvement there. The Bank of China, the PBOC, is actually coming in, and they're not 
raising rates, they're cutting rates. They're actually being stimulated to the economy. So mm-hmm. what's going on in the rest of the world is almost the polar opposite as to what's going on in China. Everybody, everywhere else, decelerating economic momentum with rising rates. In mm-hmm. China, improving economic momentum with falling rates. Mm-hmm. That's why China's economic data is improving, and that should in turn lead to a rebound in EV stocks. Now, to be clear, the, the wrinkle in that thesis is the recession, right? Yeah. Recession hits, people aren't buying big ticket items, they're not buying cars, mm-hmm. that should hurt EV stocks, right? I would say for like a Ford, yes, for a GM, yes, for a Tesla, even, yes. But mm-hmm. when you're talking about a Lucid or a Rivian, or these kind of startups that are just filling out their book right now, mm-hmm. that's not true. Because as we talked about, I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, every car these guys make, they're going mm-hmm. to sell. Mm-hmm. They are not limited by demand. People want to lose it. That order book is maxed out. People want yeah. Rivians. That order book is maxed out. What these guys are limited by is their supply, their production capacity, which is limited due in large part to what's been going on in China. Mm-hmm. If those issues in China continue to get resolved, which I think they will, and they're on the trend to be resolved, if that persists, then all of a sudden these guys' production capacity expands. They're going to be able to make more cars, not enough to where they're not going to, you know, it's going to outstrip demand, but enough to where their sales numbers are going to go higher and their profit numbers are going to go higher. So I think that EV stocks like Lucid, like Rivian can actually buck the broader market trend and Mm -hmm. rise over the next few months because of improving situation an improving situation in China. And that's also true for Neo stock. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Neo got hit last week by a short seller report, which after going through, I don't I don't think there's much merit to it. But Mm -hmm. um, I do think that Neo is going to benefit in the second half of the year from China coming back online. And we've actually seen Chinese tech stocks really start to U-turn. Look at every other Mm -hmm. stock chart. It doesn't look that pretty. Look at an Alibaba. It looks like it's forming a nice little bottom handle here and it's ready to ready to rock it higher. There are Mm -hmm. a lot of Chinese tech stocks that are performing, producing a lot of alpha. And that's because China's economy is the only one in the world that's actually improving right now. Um, So that's the sort of situation with EV stocks. Latest update on the Mm -hmm. data. I do think that an improvement in Chinese production capacity will happen over the next mm-hmm. three to six months. And as it does happen, you're going to see a U-turn in a lot of EV stocks. So is China a good indicator of where we're going to be headed af- after the recession? Or is it just, again, this kind of weird scenario where they've been no, on lockdown for so weird. long? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's just weird, Aaron. It's, it's just okay. a strange situation. Um, you have to understand, it's rebounding, but it's rebounding from a really low base. I mean, they just had another wave of COVID lockdowns. Business was, was mm-hmm. not happening over there. You know, it's... They're rebounding from a very low base. Um, they've mm-hmm. dealt with COVID very differently. The bank has reacted. The central bank has reacted very differently because of the way that they've dealt with COVID differently. Mm-hmm. So there are a too many differences between China's situation post-COVID and the mm-hmm. rest of the world's situation post-COVID to say, I used to think in the first six months after the pandemic, like from June 2020 to like December 2020, I was like, mm-hmm. okay, China is where you want to look like they're kind of a yeah. peaking in the future because they were the first to get hit by COVID, if you remember, and they're yep. the first to come mm-hmm. out of COVID, if you remember. So I kind yeah. of felt like they were a leading indicator. But in 2021, 2022, that 18-month stretch, <laughs> we've done things very differently than they've done yeah. things. And the rest of the world's done things very differently than they've done things. And therefore, that sort of like they're a leading indicator 
that I think structure is broken. And now they're just a separate thing from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, moving on, uh, several, I want to get back into our housing check-in. We, we haven't touched on that in a while. And several subscribers are kind of asking about Open Door. It's a show favorite. It's one of your favorites. Uh, can you update yep. us on the housing market and also uh, Open Door specifically? Is there anything new going on uh, there? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, so... Sorry, let me try and do this again. Do, 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 do. Got another chart for you guys. Like I said, chart-heavy show. Chart-heavy show. <laughs> we love the charts. We love the charts. Let me see. This is a very low quality. I don't know how the, the quality got all mixed <laughs> up, but let's, let's go ahead and do that. Yeah, so everyone's worried about the housing market. Everyone's freaking out. And I get it. You know, home prices are high. People can't afford it. I get mm-hmm. it. But let's look at this chart to get some context. Okay. You got it on your screen, Aaron? Yep, looking good. Okay. This graphs the year-over-year increase in home prices every single month. Okay? Okay. All back right. to 19, the 1960s. Back to 1960, basically. Okay. There have only been, in 60 years, mm-hmm. four periods of home price contraction. Like, sustainable okay. home price contraction. Mm-hmm. You had it here in the late 60s mm-hmm. into the early 70s. Very brief. Yep. You had it here in the early 1990s. Very mm-hmm. brief. You had it here in 08, which was messy and nasty. Mm-hmm. And you had it here briefly in late 2018. Okay? Okay. So you have it four times in 60 years. The average decline is 11% over 20 months. You exclude the 2008 nastiness, and it's 8% over 18 months. Okay. So that is some important context for this market. Home prices do go up over time. The second okay. chart I want to show you here. Uh, I think maybe just as important. Are we seeing it, Aaron? Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. These periods of declines usually are very well, like the housing market moves very slowly. It's not, houses are not like stocks. It's not a super mm-hmm. liquid market where we can drop 10% one day, drop 20% and then six months. Like that's not how home prices work. They move mm-hmm. like if the stock market is the hair, then the housing market is the turtle. Okay. Okay. It moves very slowly, step mm-hmm. by step by step. We're talking like a percent of decline a month. So very, mm-hmm. very slowly. As a result of that, you normally do not get super strong home price appreciation periods going into negative growth. Okay. As you can see here, you had throughout the 70s, because of inflation mostly, you had super strong HPA, 12%, 13%, up to 20% a couple years. That didn't go negative. It went to flat growth. Home prices went flat. They went, what, down 0.2% for one month here, and then they just re- – mm-hmm. you didn't get – this super strong home price appreciation did not go to negative growth. Mm-hmm. Here, you have another period of really strong home price appreciation. It took mm-hmm. three full years to go from 15% plus growth to negative growth. Three years to do that. Mm-hmm. Here, you had another, you know, up to 15% HPA, a great, really strong HPA. It took two full years 
for home prices to go negative. Two years. Here, another brief period of very strong HPA. Home prices didn't go negative until, mm-hmm. what, nine years later? Mm-hmm. We're here right now. We're here with home price appreciation. It would be yeah. absolutely unprecedented for this housing market for this chart to all of a sudden go from here to red right here. Mm-hmm. What would not be unprecedented is for it to go here to red within three or four years. Mm-hmm. That's or two or three years. That's what normally happens, yeah. but not within two or three months. Yeah. No way. That's that's not how the housing market works. It doesn't move that quickly. It moves very very slowly. So from that perspective, Aaron, I think that housing market slowdown concerns are a bit overstated at the current moment. I mm-hmm. think that when you look at the fundamentals of housing, demand is a proven durable thing even through recessions. That mm-hmm. these periods of HPA declines were not driven by demand falling out. They were driven by too much supply on the market. They were driven by the fact that there was a lot of supply with a lot of demand, and then all of a sudden demand weakened a little bit, and the supply was really high, and so prices went down. We've never seen a period where supply was low and prices decreased. It doesn't happen because demand for homes is a durable thing of the U.S. economy. So as a result of that, I do not think that home prices can decline considerably or even at all um, in this current period because supply is so low. Supply mm-hmm. is so low. And where is new supply going to come from? Well, every mm-hmm. current home seller, unless you're selling a second home, becomes a buyer. So it's not coming from current home sellers. New mm-hmm. supply comes from the builders. And the builders, their confidence is dropping. Their starts are dropping. Their permits are dropping. Their costs of construction are going up. And when they do finish those homes, they spend so much money acquiring them. I don't know if you, I have a lot of friends that are in the market looking for homes. They're mm-hmm. telling us, we're seeing in surveys, home builders are not cutting their prices. They are doing yeah. everything except that. They're throwing every incentive in the book that they can think of, dreaming of random incentives to get people <laughs> to buy the home without cutting the price. So mm-hmm. home builders are standing very firm on home prices right now. The new supply coming into the market is not cutting. Well, we're also reading, what I'm hearing from agents is that the people who are selling their homes, they're very hesitant to cut prices. Very hesitant. Mm-hmm. There have been some price drops, but they're very hesitant to do so. And mm-hmm. in the event that they do have to drop it considerably, they're just not selling their home. They're coming back. They're coming out of the market. So I think the dynamics are such right now that supply is still very constrained. People don't want to cut prices. Home builders don't want to cut prices. Um, mortgage rates, I think, are about to collapse. Mortgage rates really were ahead of the Fed. Um, just like the Treasury, uh, U.S. Treasuries, you've seen the 10-year Treasury yield. It's collapsed from 3.5 to 2.8 in about a week and a half. Mortgage mm-hmm. rates are going to start peeling back pretty big. They peeled back a little bit already. I think they're going to peel back pretty big. I think we finished the year below 5% on, on a 30-year fixed mortgage rate. So I think that what we had was this temporary freakout period that is causing a lot of people to freak out about home prices. But at the end of the day, once the dust settles, this too shall pass. And it's going to pass without impacting home prices all that much. Well, we maybe mm-hmm. see a brief decline of three to six months. Sure, totally possible. But it's not going to last that long and it's not going to be that big. And then post all this noise, home prices are going to go back to rising and doing what they normally do, up three, four, five percent a year. That's just what they're going to do for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So talking about open door, why does this not matter for open door? Open door mm-hmm. sells homes over a 90-day period. They buy a home, mm-hmm. they sell it 90 days later, okay? So we said that even in the worst declines in history, home prices yeah. only drop about a percent a month, right? Mm-hmm. So open door sells a home, 
they get 5% on that. They get the 5% commission, okay? Mm -hmm. So they've already got the 5% gross margin there. Let's say they just completely miscalculated and mm -hmm. they're not underbuying and then overselling. They're just they're buying at a market price and they're selling at a market price. So let's just say the pricing algorithms suck, which is not true. Then that means <laughs> that if you go to the worst housing market of all time, they take 5% uh -huh. on their commission. They lose yeah. a percent in the first 30 days, a percent in the next 30 days, and a percent in the next 30 days. So they lose 3% mm -hmm. over three months. They sell the home at a 3% loss. They got the 5% commission. Five minus three is two. They sold a 2% gross margin. Yeah. So there's still a positive gross margin business, even if their pricing algorithms absolutely are terrible. Mm -hmm. And they have the capacity to reduce their, their cost basis to maintain EBITDA, EBITDA profitability, even if gross margins fall to 2%. We saw that with COVID-19, how quickly they can pivot in the event mm -hmm. that the housing market does just completely evaporate or, or completely go to, um, you know, get blown to bits. But that's not going to happen. We know that yeah. Open Doors house, house pricing algorithms are actually very good. They're designed by some very smart people. Um, I've interacted with them on, on, a, on a customer basis. I know that these algorithms are very good. So from mm -hmm. that perspective, I don't think it's possible that these guys lose 3% in 90 days. I think at most, even in a down market, they lose 1% to 2%. And I actually think they're going to make money on a lot of these homes. So now you're talking anywhere on the order of 4% to 6%, 7%, 8% gross margins, at which point the cost basis is at a level where they should be able to get 3 4 5% EBITDA margins. And that is not priced into the stock at all. So I, for one, am very confident in the open door model. I think the reason the market is so hesitant on it is because the market's never seen a company like this, just like mm -hmm. the market had never seen a company like Amazon back in 2002, when it yeah. was a sub $5 stock back then as well, remember. Um, when the market hasn't <laughs> seen a business before, Wall Street yeah. is a giant consensus algorithm. I get that. But Wall mm -hmm. Street's consensus is a byproduct of its previous learnings. Okay. There is not a lot of creativity in Wall Street analysis. Mm -hmm. I will be the first to, to say that. There is a yeah. serious dearth of creativity. There's a lot of creativity in venture capital analysis, not a lot of creativity in Wall Street analysis. So mm -hmm. Wall Street sees Open Door as a business model they've never seen before that mm -hmm. could fail if the pricing algorithms aren't right and they assume the worst. Yeah. But if you think creatively about the business and understand that the pricing algorithms are actually very good and that the housing market moves very slowly, then you'll understand mm -hmm. that open door will, even if there is a housing market downturn, which I don't think there will be, will survive mm -hmm. that storm, come out on the other side of very successful business. I mean, the company is rapidly expanding right now. Mm -hmm. That has to say something. This company is not yeah. run by idiots. It's run by yeah. some very smart people. Compass, cutting employees. Redfin, cutting employees. Zillow, pulled out of iBuying. Open door, mm -hmm. just expanded into four new markets. Mm -hmm. I think that speaks for itself. I think that honestly speaks for itself that you have a company that is so confident in itself at this point in time that it mm. is expanding to new markets when all of its competitors are firing people. Either they are brazen idiots or they're about to dominate this market in a way that nobody sees coming. And that's mm. what I think should happen. So I really, I'm super bullish and open door always have been and always will, will continue to be the market price action means nothing to me at this point in time. I think that this is a long-term significant winner uh, by 2025, 2026, 2027, I, this company is, is a fabulous company. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad that we could answer that question on Open Door. Uh, moving along to our market check-in, um, you know, 
early trading action this week suggests that the market is fully embracing a recession, like you said. Yep. Um, you know, stocks are down, yields are crashing, oil has broken under 100. Uh, how much has changed, you know, in a week? And is the patient long-term plan that you've explained last week still the intact way to go about all of this? Oh, Aaron, it's more true than ever with the trading action this week. More true than ever. What do you have to do during recessions? You have to not think about the recession. You have to mm -hmm. think about what's going to happen after the recession because every recession is followed by an expansion. Every bear market turns into a mm -hmm. bull market. Every sell-off yep. becomes a rally and we go to all-time highs. So what do you have to do during recession? You have to fully embrace. It's not time to ditch the long-term thinking. It's time to mm -hmm. fully embrace the long-term thinking like it's the best friend you've always wanted. And mm -hmm. that, that's what we're doing right now. I mean, things are playing out in the way that we thought they would play out. Markets embracing recession. I think we're going from inflation to disinflation. I think we're going mm -hmm. from inflation fears to recession fears. Basically, mm -hmm. over the past 12 months, you've had a world economy defined by too many dollars chasing too few goods. Too many dollars mm -hmm. because the government was printing money like crazy. Rates were at zero. Consumers saved a lot of money during the pandemic. So there was a lot of dollar flow coming out and too few goods because supply chains everywhere are broken, specifically over in China, they were broken. And that's the hub of the world's um, industrial output or the hub of the world's mm -hmm. manufacturing output. So we had too many dollars chasing too few goods. Now we're at this critical inflection point where we're getting the exact opposite. We're going to go into a world of too few dollars chasing too many goods because, mm -hmm. one, consumers have dipped into those giant savings accounts. I read this report from Moody's Analytics saying that something like 10 to 15 percent of those giant savings we built up during the pandemic, we've already drained them. And people are mm -hmm. getting into those more. Personal savings mm -hmm. rates in the United States last month, I think it dropped to 5.4 percent. Mm -hmm. Historically, average pre-pandemic, we were seven, eight, nine percent. During the pandemic, we got up to above thirty percent. So we're mm. looking at, you know, five point four percent is abysmally low on a personal savings rate. That is not good for the the, the consumer right now. We're seeing mm -hmm. consumers drawing down record amounts of debt. We're seeing interest rates go up, so the cost of debt is going up. We're seeing corporations respond by not drawing on as much debt. So all of a sudden, mm -hmm. all this dollar flow that was happening is slowing significantly. Mm -hmm. So now we're getting too many dollars, too few dollars. At the same time, this is the bullwhip effect we talked about last week. Yep. During 2021, you and I were spending like crazy. Mm -hmm. As a result, suppliers were ordering stuff like crazy. Walmart mm -hmm. was ordering stuff like crazy. Target was ordering stuff like crazy. And it was exacerbated by the fact that there were supply chain shortages. So they didn't know when they were going to get their next shipment of um, – Nespresso pods or the next shipment of, of G2 <clears throat> pens or whatever. So they ordered all of that stuff in bulk mm -hmm. many times over. Yeah. Meanwhile, the guys who make that stuff were ordering from their manufacturers, their raw resource suppliers. We need a bunch of stuff. So then those people started doing a bunch all the way down the supply chain. So mm -hmm. what we had is now a whole bunch of order flow coming through the supply chain at the same time that all this demand that the retailers thought was going to happen is not happening mm -hmm. because we're talking about a recession because yeah. layoffs are coming down the pipeline because jobless claims are rising because the stock market is down 20% because mm -hmm. gas is costing us $6 a gallon because our groceries are costing us $200 on a trip. Right? Yep. This is what's happening. Mm -hmm. Everybody, over, we had too, too many dollars, too few goods. As a result, all the people making goods overordered all those goods. And all the people who spent all that money spent all that money, don't have much left over. So now we have too few dollars chasing too many goods, inflation, disinflation. 
inflation fears, recession fears, rising yields, falling yields, rising commodity prices, falling commodity prices, and in my opinion, falling mm-hmm. tech stocks, rising tech stocks. I mm-hmm. think we're in that critical inflection point right now. As I look at the market today, oil is breaking down below 99. We're at 98.76. Looking at my, my check right now. <laughs> I'm gonna look over and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look over at the market. And I got the Dow, you know, big yeah. companies, economically sensitive, some cyclicals in there. It's down 2%. Looking mm-hmm. at the NASDAQ, tech companies, growth companies, secular tailwinds, it's down 24 bips, 0.2%. Mm-hmm. Arc Complex, Kathy Wood's Arc Complex, last check that mm-hmm. I had, that was up about 35 uh, 4% today. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of our portfolios were up 2 to 3% today. Mm-hmm. There is, I think there is a shift happening in the markets, and I think it's a very important shift to, to note. I don't think it's like linear from here. Everything's mm-hmm. going to be volatile and choppy. There's yeah. going to be no super clear path. But I do think we're working through this shift from, okay, this was the trading paradigm for 12 months. We're entering mm-hmm. a new paradigm. And I think in that new paradigm, I think growth shines. I think tech rebounds. I think commodities collapse. I think yields collapse. Um, and it's kind of this recession washout, cleaning the mm-hmm. excesses, building a clean slate so we can have that new bull market. I think that's where we are in terms of the macro check-in. As it relates to the Fed, I think the Fed keeps hiking, but mm-hmm. they're going to pivot probably sooner than what a lot of people think. And actually, let me pull up this chart for you guys. Mm-hmm. Told you, chart heavy week. Chart heavy week. <laughs> let me pull up this chart for you guys. So this is uh, Bloomberg's world interest rate probabilities they call it the warp um and it's basically it's 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 supposed to forecast the market's consensus on where interest rates are going Mm -hmm. so you see it aaron yep okay Mm -hmm. now if you see here this is february 23 okay that's peak okay Basically, what the market is now saying is that interest rates are going to go higher until early 23 and they're going to start cutting, mm-hmm. which is a massive shift in market. Like before, this chart looked like it was up, 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 up and away until 24 and then it came down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now it's peaking in 23 and coming down. So basically, the market has shifted from saying, okay, the Fed is going to hike rates for the rest of 22 all of 23 and into 24 to now they're saying the Fed's going to start cutting in early 23. So we basically moved the rate cut timeline ahead by 12 months. And I think mm-hmm. given the, the momentum behind the economic data today, the very negative momentum, I think that gets mm-hmm. advanced. Right now we're looking at March 23, February 23. Maybe we start looking at 4Q22 for a pivot. So I think mm-hmm. the Fed is eventually going to pivot and it's going to pivot in a pretty big way. And that's probably going to be the catalyst, which allows the market to really get on stable footing again. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of ties into a fan question from CS Lowe. Um, the, yep. He asks, the stock market continues to fall due to this recession fear. Why is the market fearful of and reacting negatively to the possibility of a recession if it is actually a quote unquote good thing to get a recession, as you put it? Markets think on a, on a six to 12 month basis. I think on a five to 10 year basis. Mm-hmm. I think that, 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 that is the most fundamental difference. Um, and as a result of that, the markets are very scared about a recession over the next 12 months because it is going to negatively impact earnings. Um, mm-hmm. Because despite all of the recession talk that we've had recently, despite yields crashing, despite commodity prices collapsing, um, earnings numbers have not come down. 
I think they, they're mm-hmm. just starting to come down. I think I, I saw that the 2022 and 2023 estimates are finally peaking and they're coming down like a buck a share, like very mm-hmm. tiny revisions. But considering the mass negative sentiment and the consensus that we are either in a recession or going into a recession very soon, that is not jived where earnings estimates are today. So earnings estimates mm-hmm. have to come down. I think that's why there's a lot of fear selling today, actually, on, on the bigger uh, companies as well, because July, we're going to get in this earnings season. This is probably going to be that inflection point on conference mm-hmm. calls, in guidances, where management teams are kind of like, okay, last quarter, we said things were okay. We're going to hit our targets. This quarter, uh, things got a lot worse. We're not going to hit our targets. <laughs> so let's reset the expectations. I think mm-hmm. that's going to be the tone on most conference calls this earnings season. So mm-hmm. as a result, coming out of this earnings season, you're probably going to see those earnings estimates start to come down quite a bit. That's going to negatively impact stock prices. That's going to pull them lower because it impacts mm-hmm. a 6 to 12 month outlook for those stocks based on their earnings trajectory. So I think that's why the market is fearful of what's going on. But as soon as we get that earnings estimates, those earnings estimates down, those revisions, as soon as that gets washed through the market, then I think we're ready to go get off to the races. Um, having said that, I think that where we are today in the cycle is at a mm-hmm. point where those earnings estimates revisions are not priced into mega cap stocks, but mm-hmm. are priced in small and mid cap stocks. Okay. If you look at the S and P 500 large cap PE multiple, um, it's still pretty high, uh, mm-hmm. 16, 17 times. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty normal. But you exclude the large caps, you go to the S&P, you go to the mid cap, you go to the small cap indices, and we're trading at 9, 10 times, net 9, 10, 11 times forward earnings. That mm-hmm. is pretty much an all-time low multiple in, in the modern era, so post-1990. Um, so a lot of the smaller mid cap stuff has been priced for massive earnings estimates, revisions lower, whereas the large cap stuff is not. So I think while the broader indices might struggle, because mm-hmm. they're market cap weighted and the large caps own a lot of weighting in those. I think small and mid caps can actually thrive because there's going to be an excess of dollars out of the large caps towards the small and mid caps. And I also think that a beneficiary of that are going to be these growth stocks, these tech mm-hmm. stocks that won't see big earnings estimates revisions. I mean, think about it for a second. Um, give me uh, so. Give me, give me a stock, Aaron. Give me a, a growth stock that you like. Uh, so far. Okay. So let's think about the earnings revisions that would have to happen in the event we have a recession. Um, mm-hmm. Let's look at maybe a, a, a railroad company, CSX or something. Okay. Uh, rail demand is going to get hit hard. Uh, Shipments yeah. are going to go down because people are going to mm-hmm. stop shopping as much. And it's, it's going to be a pretty ugly situation for them. You're going to have to see massive earnings revisions on a, on a CSX. Um, but if you look at a SoFi, mm-hmm. are people going to stop signing up for SoFi because of recession? Or are they actually going to go towards SoFi more because SoFi mm-hmm. offers better rates and lower fees than many of their mm-hmm. other traditional banking platforms? Are they going to go to SoFi more because they're going to all of a sudden value this all-in-one um, convenience prop of being able to trade stocks, trade cryptos, learn about finance, right? Maybe all of a sudden the education portion of SoFi mm-hmm. becomes a really, really big uh, value proposition for prospective customers because you're learning about finance at a time when you need to learn about finance because money's <laughs> not flowing everywhere. 
Um, yeah. So I actually, there is a world wherein SoFi benefits as a result of a, of a, of a recession, of a, of a drawdown in consumer spending. And therefore, mm. I think the earnings estimates or visions on a SoFi don't have to be that big and won't be that big. In fact, they may not mm-hmm. happen at all. Whereas on a, on a railroad company, they're going to be very large. So mm-hmm. I think you're going to see a shifting of dollars in the market towards those stocks and companies that will not see large earnings revisions as a result of this recession kind of chatter flowing through and working its way through the market. And those mm-hmm. are the stocks I want to be in. And a lot of Got those it. stocks, quite frankly, are stocks that have three, four, five-year outlooks because you aren't making a three, four, five-year decision based on a six-month recession, right? Yeah. Does your outlook on self-driving cars, if you're an auto company, does it change mm-hmm. as a result of what's happening right now? No. Does no. your outlook on electric vehicles change? No. Is no. Mark Zuckerberg's outlook on the metaverse changing? No. No. Um, so <laughs> the, these things are not changing. So things with three, four, five-year outlooks actually mm-hmm. should be able to weather the storm because the people spending money on those technologies, on those disruptions – are not really changing their spending on those because of what's happening in a six, 12 month window here and now. Mm-hmm. And that's why going to the top of this conversation about macros, yeah. I believe the best thing you got to do right now is embrace that long term. You have yeah. to embrace long term because you have to embrace decisions that are not impacted by what happens over the next six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I, do, I personally don't like chasing, you know, the, the trade of the month or all that stuff. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, it, it's a it's a game of musical chairs, and I don't want to mm-hmm. be stuck without a chair. You know, I yeah. want to be in things that I have confidence in are going to last for a long mm-hmm. time. They're going to build statues and empires and cities that can weather <laughs> a lot of storms. Um, and so I, I think that that is that's where I stand about this market right now, and that's why I think the, mm-hmm. the, the things we're invested in right now will actually produce alpha as these recession fears proliferate throughout the market. Not to mention the collapse in yields is super important, right? Mm-hmm. Ten-year treasury yield rising from one five to three five was a mm-hmm. knife in the back of growth stocks. Yeah. Valuation hammered by that. Mm-hmm. If we start to see yields, I mean, they're already down three five to two eight. Where are we right now on the ten-year? Two seven nine on the ten-year. So two seven eight mm-hmm. actually broke below. So we're breaking. Um, if we start coming down to two five, two four, two three, I think we end the year around two two. If that mm-hmm. does happen, that's going to be a massive boost to growth stock valuation. So I think the best mm-hmm. place to be invested right now are things that one won't see big earnings estimates revisions, and two will benefit from lower yields. That's growth mm-hmm. stocks. That's growth stock yeah. wheelhouse. I think mm-hmm. the market's starting to embrace that trade. Hmm. Uh, another follow-up question from CS Low is. Uh, and we've, we talked about this last week, uh, the idea of stagflation. Um, very yep. unlikely chance that it happens, but I think the question is still a good one. How should investors adjust their portfolio and get prepared for stagflation if it happens? Uh, again, he understands you think it's only a 2% chance of it happening, but in the unlikely event it does, you know, how should investors prepare for that? Um, well, what performed well in the 70s? Gold performed well in the 70s. Oil performed well mm-hmm. in the 70s. I don't think oil will, if we do get stagflation, oil will perform well again because what we talked about earlier, you're going to get demand destruction because uh, yeah. there are viable alternatives people can pivot to that are more cost effective. But I do think gold is, is the place to be if you're going to be, if we are looking at a stagflation outcome. I mm-hmm. will not prep for that right now because <laughs> I think it's a low outcome, such a low likelihood of happening. We are yeah. seeing inflation get crushed right now. 
as uh, much yeah. as a lot of people. And that the markets work six to twelve months in advance of Main Street. Wall Street's always six to twelve months ahead of Main Street. So yeah. while we're not feeling it yet, really, I mean, we are seeing yeah. some prices come down. The markets are telling us prices are about to get just destroyed, obliterated. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm in that camp. I think inflation is is going to get smacked in the face. One two KO done. <laughs> like I, I I think it's going to be a, a rapid deceleration of two percent okay. over the next. Six to twelve months, um, but yes, there is a possibility of stagflation, and we do have to put that into the valuation calculus. Mm-hmm. Not give it much credence, but we have to be aware of that black swan risk. If that does happen right now, I would say yeah. gold, but we have to see how things progress. If, if that does become more and more likely, um, but yeah, mm-hmm. you would probably have to say that gold is the best place to be, um, mm-hmm. and then you have to ask yourself the question of. How long does the stagflation last? You know, yeah. is it a stagflation situation that's going to be like the '70s? It lasts ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you're just going to want to stick with gold. Is it one that could be resolved within two years? Then you know, maybe start thinking about some some growth stocks because for the rebound, mm-hmm. once the stagflation ends, uh, the mm-hmm. '80s were a great decade for growth stocks, uh, and that actually led to the '90s too, which is another great decade for growth stocks. So um, <laughs> you have to understand that. When stagflation does sit, we're going to have to be very – not when, sorry. If it does sit, we're going to have to be – it's a case-by-case basis. But yeah. if you want a single answer right now, it would be gold is the place to be if stagflation does become a broad and pervasive issue, which I'm going to say again <laughs> to emphasize is a very, very unlikely outcome. Got it. Uh, moving along to our crypto check-in. Um, Luke, can you explain sure. how – uh, realized losses and any other data that you're looking at suggests that we may have seen, you know, the max pain in crypto. Uh, and are there any other data points suggesting Bitcoin around 20,000 may be the bottom? All right. So realize, yeah. So I think this, uh, this question ties closely to what I told my subscribers in a, in a crypto weekly update last Mm -hmm. Saturday. And I will, um, will also screen share this because I mm-hmm. like to screen share today. <laughs> Let the charts do the talk and not me, huh? There you go. So this is a chart. Oh, Aaron, you seeing it coming down your side? Yep. Mm-hmm. This is a chart of Bitcoin uh, prices on the top and then Bitcoin realized losses in the yellow bar. And then the bottom mm-hmm. is Bitcoin realized losses as a percent of the total market cap of Bitcoin. Um, realized okay. losses are when you know people actually sell and they realize a loss on that Bitcoin on that transaction. Okay, okay, that, yep. that's a realized loss. As sure. you can see, realized losses tend to get pretty high during market bottoms. You know, they they peaked right here. This is the the, the late 2018. Um, mm-hmm. They peaked right here. That is the the COVID sell off. Um, yep. They peaked here. This is kind of a bit of an anomaly coming down. Uh, big peak here. Uh, so that's realized losses. But the one that's a little bit more interesting is a bottom chart that is realized losses as a percent of market cap. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, we're very low. We only break above 1% three times. Three mm-hmm. times in the past, uh, in the history of Bitcoin. Once was the bear market bottom of 2018. The other mm-hmm. was the flash crash bottom of the COVID-19 crash. And yep. the other time was just right now. 
Mm-hmm. So this is yet another. I mean, I've shown a sequence of charts to my subscribers, and I believe uh, in these um, discussions as well, a sequence mm-hmm. of charts which kind of continue to illustrate that we're at a max pain point. Uh, this is mm-hmm. a, one of those charts. Another one of those charts has to do with something called the the um, the Puel multiple. And mm-hmm. what the Puel multiple is, is it's an oscillator uh, that compares the Bitcoin miners. So Bitcoin miners... Uh, mm-hmm. how much money they make on a daily basis. The Bitcoin yeah. miners, they mine Bitcoin and then they, they make money off of it. What the mm-hmm. Pew Multiple compares is the daily miner revenue exactly. relative to the rolling one-year average of that revenue. Okay. So basically, let's say it's, it's like at, right now it's at 0.42. Okay. 0.42 implies that what Bitcoin miners are making today is 42% of what they made on average in a day over the past year. Okay. And let me show you now the chart of the fuel multiple. Let me know when it comes in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Bitcoin price in orange, fuel multiple in white. Fuel mm-hmm. multiple. You see right here, these breaks right below this 0.45, level. Mm-hmm. Rarely does. Rarely do Bitcoin miner revenues reach below 50% of their rolling one-year average revenues. Mm-hmm. When it does, historically consistent with bottoms. Here we mm-hmm. have it early 2015. That was that bear market bottom. Here we have mm-hmm. it late 2018. That was that bear market bottom. Here we have it 2020 flash crash. That was that flash crash bottom. Here we have it. We didn't really break below 50%, but we got darn near awful close in july 21 mm-hmm. that was that bottom right here and then here we have mm-hmm. we actually broke below we're at 42 percent now 0.42 and that's where we are today so yet another chart that shows we are at or at least very near max pain in the crypto markets and that twenty thousand is a level that should hold i think that there is a very good argument for why this time is different because mm-hmm. we're actually going into a recession yeah Bitcoin has never been through a real recession. 2020 doesn't count. That was a fake recession. Bitcoin has never lived through a real recession. This time is definitely different. No Mm -hmm. doubt about it. Having said that, I don't think it is different enough to offset the growing mountain of evidence from realized losses, pure multiples, uh, the, um, the average cost basis chart that I've shown before. From mm-hmm. all those things, it's kind of like, um, well, that evidence is too strong to say that this time is different enough yeah. for it not to be near a max pain point. So mm-hmm. I still think there is the possibility yep. we break the 10 on Bitcoin. I still think okay. there is the possibility that there is another 50% drop out there for alts, mm-hmm. but it's not my base case. My base okay. case is that we hold around the 20 level. And again, okay. you have to give Bitcoin wiggle room. You have to give cryptos wiggle room. You can't say, oh, we broke 20. Time to freak out. Bitcoin is yeah. so volatile. You got to give it plus or minus 3,000 each side. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if we break below 17, for me, 17 is a level. If we break below 17, I'm like, okay, that, that's a little scary. You know, because okay. now we're plus or minus 3% on our 20,000 hold. We broke below minus 3 of that. That's a little scary. Mm-hmm. It looks like 12, 11, 10 is next. So that's mm-hmm. where I would start to get a little bit worried, technically speaking. But for right now, I think we continue to hold this range. I think we continue to consolidate because you have to understand we're going to get so many catalysts coming up. If things play out the yeah. way that we believe they will. One, 
you're going to get a Fed pivot in the back half of 2022 or the first quarter of 2023. So sometime mm-hmm. between 4Q23 and or 4Q22 and 1Q23, you're going to get a Fed pivot. And what I want to show is actually one more chart of how Fed yep. pivots do impact the price of Bitcoin. Because mm-hmm. we have a we do, we do have a precedent here. We do have okay. a precedent for how Bitcoin prices are impacted by rate hikes. And mm-hmm. let me pull up that chart for you. I pulled it up. Now let me screen share. We do have a precedent for how interest rates and Fed policy impact Bitcoin. So we can see here, this mm-hmm. is a chart from 2018, 2019. This was the last yep. time the Fed made a pivot on policy towards being more dovish. from going from hiking rates to either pausing or cutting rates. Okay. We can see here, you can see the chart, right, Aaron? Just want to make yep. sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Throughout 2018, the Fed was hiking rates. Hike, hike, hike. We were hiking. Bitcoin yep. was crash, crash, crash. <laughs> we were crashing. Look when yep. Bitcoin bottomed. Look when yep. Bitcoin bottomed. Late 2018. What happened mm-hmm. in late 2018? Fed stopped hiking rates. Yep. Fed went flat. Fed, Fed went neutral. Powell said sometime in here, early 2019, you know, we're not hiking rates anymore. We're going to stay on neutral. We may cut. They ended up cutting later in the year anyways. But here, this pivot from hiking rates to going flat is what caused Mm -hmm. Bitcoin to go from selling off to rebounding. This Mm U-turn in the market, this rebound from 3,500 to 10,000, basically a Mm -hmm. 3x gain, was catalyzed by a Fed policy pivot from hawkish Mm -hmm. to neutral. Yeah. We have a precedent. Mm-hmm. So you have that going on. You have the Bitcoin having happening in the first half of 2024. Usually boom cycles start 12 months before the halving. So you're going to get those two catalysts coming together in late 2022, early 2023. I think those two catalysts are too strong to not cause cryptos to get into another boom cycle. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that I don't know what happens with a crystal ball between now and the first quarter of 23, but yeah. I am pretty confident in saying that by the first quarter of 23, whether it's a 20 or 10, we're going to start a new boom cycle. And uh-huh. in that boom cycle, Bitcoin's going to hit new highs. Ethereum is going to hit new highs. And certain high quality alts are going to hit new highs. I think the boom cycle is mm-hmm. going to look a bit differently because people have lost some trust in some of these sketchy projects. So not yeah. everything, not rising tide, lift all boat situation. But it's going to be a rising tides list, list the strongest boat situations. Okay. And that's exactly what I think we're going to get in 2023, 2024, 2025. I think between now and then, between the start of that, we do consolidate, but there is a chance we break down. So that's why it's not time to get super aggressive, but rather time mm-hmm. to just be patient, 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 selective, 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 wait for confirmation of a bottom, wait for these catalysts to show up, wait for the Fed to come up with the cavalry, and then start taking more shots. That, that's mm-hmm. where I stand with the crypto markets right now. All right. Well, sounds like a good position to be in for right now. Uh, Closing out with some fan questions. Uh, First one from RL. Uh, Luke seems to have a lot of FUD on Tesla. But when I look at the financials and I see them uh, smoking the rest of the competition, can you can you guys explain this slight pessimism? Um, FUD on Tesla. I wouldn't say I'm bearish on Tesla as a company. I'm bearish on Tesla from the valuation perspective. It it's smoking the company. Well, actually, BYD just overtook them as the top EV seller in the world. So okay. uh, BYD is, is a Chinese <laughs> EV maker. And Tesla is no longer the biggest EV maker in the world. Um, uh, go go Google go Google that, BYD Tesla, and you'll see that BYD just overtook them, uh, actually, as of July 2022. 
Um, okay. So that is something that is definitely happening. I am. I think Tesla is going to be fine. Tesla is, gonna, is a great company. They're going to sell lots of cars. They're going to be selling yeah. millions of vehicles a year one day, of course. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're on track to be a fabulous company. Yep. But the market cap is – I haven't checked it in a while because um, it's absurd. But the market <laughs> cap is – I'm going to – Seven hundred and ten billion dollars. That's kind of high. I'm bearish on Tesla stock because I think at the end of the day, one, it is an automaker. We have to value mm-hmm. it as an automaker. Two, yeah. it's self-driving stuff. I think is complete hype. I think okay. vision-only economy, based on all the engineers I've talked to in the space, literally every single one thinks vision-only autonomy. Vision-only autonomy is a farce. So I think that that is a a misstep Elon made early uh, back in 2014, 2015 when LiDAR was super expensive and now because of his pride, he's refusing to go back on that. And so I think they're kind of screwing themselves over uh, with their vision-only autonomy efforts. So I think that whole like we have to bake in the the ride sharing and self-driving aspect, I don't bake that into my valuation calculus for them because I don't think it's it's worth baking in. Um, I think the solar business is going to boom. I think they're they're – absolute monsters at solar and i think the power okay. wall business the energy storage business is going to boom so i think they're monsters at that but even in my evaluation my modeling i'm every company yeah. we talk about in depth not the railroad company but every company <laughs> we talk about in depth i create 10 to 15 year models on i forecast yeah. out their unit sales their average sales prices their revenues their gross margins their sure. opex basis EBITDA margins. I forecast all these companies out 10 to 15 years. When I do yep. that with Tesla and I factor in a company that is going to grow the auto business like wildfire. When yep. I factor in a company that's going to grow the solar business like wildfire. When yep. I factor in a company that they're going to grow their um, energy storage business like wildfire. Gross margins are going to stay around that 30% level, if not go up to 32, 33, 34, 35. Operating margins will climb up to 20, 25%. Even when I factor all that into a model, I cannot get to a price tag that makes the stock look super compelling at a $710 billion valuation today. Mm-hmm. That's the problem with Tesla stock. As I think gotcha. it factors in a lot of self-driving hype that is mm-hmm. not really substantiated by the science or by mm-hmm. the, the evidence of the on-road crashes and whatnot. So I think that that is one of the reasons I am not. And I think another reason is I do think the market is underestimating, based on the modeling I've done, underestimating mm-hmm. their market share erosion. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I was driving with some friends this weekend and we were, we were on the road and there was a Tesla in front of us and a Tesla behind us. And I was yeah. like, guys, look at it. We're in a Tesla sandwich. I just trying to make a funny joke, terrible joke, dad joke, of course. Right. Um, I was like, guys, look, we're in a, we're in a Tesla sandwich. And my friend was like, you know what? That's the problem with Teslas, man. They're like not cool anymore. Cause everyone has one. Uh-huh. That was something I was saying 12 months ago. I was like, this commoditization, this brand commoditization is a yeah. thing. And I'm starting to hear that now. I'm starting to hear that more and more and more on the road. So I think people are really mm-hmm. underestimating the market share erosion that Tesla is going to undergo. They're still going to grow like crazy because yeah. the EV pie is growing like crazy. They're yep. monsters at, at production. They have great batteries, great specs. I mean, it's a fabulous company. But they're going to have a lot of market share erosion. Lucid's going to steal a lot of customers. Rivian's going to steal a lot of customers. I think Ford is already stealing a lot of customers. GM's going to steal some customers. As everyone pivots, they're going to lose some customers, prospective buyers. Mm -hmm. And so I think the market share erosion is being understated. And that's why, in my opinion, Tesla stock is just – it's not a short. It's not really a strong buy. It's it's just here. 
And I don't think it's it's a fantastic investment. I kind of viewed it as almost like a Coca-Cola of sorts um, mm-hmm. at this point in time, um, like a, a high beta Coca-Cola. And um, mm-hmm. from that perspective, I, I'm not very interested. I, I To be fully transparent, I was the loudest bull on Tesla stock in 2017. Uh-huh. 2017, 2018, I was the loudest bull you could possibly be. Everybody was saying they were going bankrupt. I remember being in the trenches and taking shot mm-hmm. after shot after shot after shot because this company's going bankrupt. It's dumb. Electric vehicles are not the future. And I'm there saying electric vehicles are the future and this company's making the best cars. Connect the dots. Pretty simple. So I was yeah. the biggest bull. I'm not, not this guy who like was been negative on them forever. I was yeah. one of their loudest cheerleaders for the longest time. Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, I'm a realist. And I think realistically they're going to lose market share. Uh, and mm-hmm. the valuation is priced for far too much good and not enough negativity. And that scares me from an investment perspective. Um, mm. But, hey, if you want to make 5 to 10% a year, long-term buy and hold it, yeah, do it. It's going to go up 10% a year. Mm. Easy. It's just not going to yeah. get you those 30%, 40%, 50% compound mm-hmm. returns. It's not going to double in 12 months. It's not going to triple in 36 months, you know. Mm-hmm. But it'll get you 10, 20% a year. That's, mm. that, that's, that's, my, that's my take on Tesla right now. Well, well, kind of continuing that the trend of uh, EVs and uh, AVs, uh, Dating Luong has a question. Uh, very interesting topic on the up-and-coming AVs. How do we get in early on this technology, in particular to Waymo? Will Waymo have uh, have its own stock ticker, or should we start loading up on Alphabet Class A? I don't think Alphabet has any. I mean, I have no insider information or insights here, really. I don't. I haven't heard any murmurs, but I don't think Alphabet is is planning any sort of spin-off of Waymo to launch mm-hmm. its own um, IPO. Uh, so I think the the way to play Waymo is is Alphabet. And I, yeah, I think Alphabet actually looks pretty good here. Mm-hmm. Honestly, when I the I get advertising goes down in recessions, but search advertising has proven to be the most recession resilient digital ad format. Um, in the sure. marketplace. So, and that is Google's bread and butter. Um, Alphabet's yeah. bread and butter, sorry, is Google search advertising. So I think they're somewhat shielded from advertising headwinds. Um, I think the Google Cloud business is rock solid. I think that business is going to continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow right through a recession as well, because I think cloud computers is one of those things companies are going to continue to pay for, uh, even in a yeah. recession. And they're long contracts, they're big long contracts. So I think that helps as well over there. And then I think Waymo is just being, it's like a given for free in that business right now. When you look at the multiple it's trading at and you look at the drivers that are happening there, Waymo is basically being given for free. And that to me is like an absolute steal because Waymo is still crushing it in autonomous vehicles. I think Mm -hmm. Aurora is pulling even with them, if not eclipse them a little bit, but Waymo Mm -hmm. is still big time. Um, And what they're doing in in San Francisco with ride hailing is pretty impressive. And Phoenix has always been pretty impressive. So um, yeah, if you want to play Waymo, play Alphabet stock. And I think Alphabet stock actually looks pretty good here. Um, the valuation makes a lot of sense. And I think the headwinds are overstated. All right. Uh, Seb Decron asks, uh, hi, Luke. What do you prefer, Beyond Meat or Plant X? Plant-based meat is, is, is not where it's at anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, plant, we, we cooled on plant-based meat more than 12 months ago. Um, yeah. And the reason for that is people don't care enough. The environmental aspect of it was not ever that strong. It was overstated. Mm-hmm. And we ourselves misunderstood that. Um, we okay. thought there was a larger buyer, pool of buyers for um, 
plant-based meat on the assumption that those buyers wanted to make environmentally conscious decisions. But uh, turns out that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. The other problem is that there's a lot of commoditization in the business. Uh, impossible, beyond, they taste very similar um, mm-hmm. to those of us that are not very much in the know. I'm sure to those that are plant-based meat <laughs> Sores, of course, is yeah. that massive difference. But to the rest of us, there's really not that much of a difference. It's plant-based and in real meat. And there's not like a discrepancy in the plant-based category. So I think there's some product commoditization going on there. And then I think um, the bigger thing for us was lab meat. We're seeing a mm-hmm. lot of impressive technical progress on lab meat. And we ultimately mm-hmm. think that lab meat is going to usurp real meat as the kind of alternative meat in the world mm-hmm. and plant-based meat can actually become an afterthought. Okay. Um, if I, if I had to make, if I had to pick a horse in the race of what is going to be our meat consumption of the future, I'd say lab meat because lab <laughs> meat, we can actually make it taste and feel exactly like real meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and the resource drain there is there's no real natural resource drain. Whereas plant-based mm-hmm. meat, there is some natural resource drain. Um, there's no natural resource drain with lab meat. Science mm-hmm. is very complex. Energy usage is still very high. Uh, we're, no one's doing it at scale, at any real scale. So it's still a long ways off. But um, it is a more promising technology than plant-based meat for sure. So Beyond Meat or Plant X, um, let's say nay to both because I okay. am just not in that space anymore, not in that game. And I think there are much more promising emerging technologies to invest in, like self-driving yep. cars, like electric mm-hmm. vehicles, like hydrogen. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, it's just not that exciting right now. Food tech Hmm. is not that exciting right now. Hmm. Okay. Uh, last question from go retro, uh, any updates on the sec being able to audit us listed Chinese companies? Thanks. Um, yeah, there, there hasn't been a real update on that right now, though. It does appear U.S. and China relations are improving. I heard this morning that, or actually last night, that Biden is considering, um, U.S. President uh, Joe Biden is considering removing some of the tariffs that Trump put on China um, in an attempt to, to, to fight back against inflation. I don't think it'll do much in the fight against inflation. I think inflation is kind of already rolling over as is, but... Um, That move in and of itself shows an improvement in the diplomatic relations between the U.S. and China. And I think that as those relations improve, I mean, they go hand in hand with these SEC stuff. So um, there hasn't been a real tangible update, but there have been related updates. And I think those related updates are pretty positive for those stocks. That's another reason why, again, we talked about earlier, Chinese tech stocks have been working recently. Alibaba has been working recently. Neo has gone from that 13, 14 handle to 23, 24. It got that short report came out at 20, but it was on, you know, that's almost a hundred percent rally there. Um, you've seen a lot of these these stocks really turn around, um, from real low levels and they got a long Mm -hmm. ways to go. So they hit their peaks again, but they have stayed, stayed pretty incredible turnarounds. Part of that is the Chinese rebound, uh, the rebound in Chinese economic activity. Another part of it is you haven't heard much about the SEC stuff, right? And on that front, yeah. no news is good. So um, I think so long as it's at <laughs> yeah. point, then, then it's all good for those stocks. Great. Uh, well, that kind of wraps us up. Uh, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors as always. Luke, do you have any last words before we wrap for the day? I think I talked enough today, Aaron. What are we, an hour, <laughs> hour 15 into this one? So I think yeah. I, I talked plenty today. But it was a lot to talk about. I mean, the markets are dynamically changing right now, and we need to be mm-hmm. on top of those changes. 
Uh, I think a lot of what has worked will not work. I think we're kind of in this this flipping of what is what is going to happen in the market. So mm-hmm. um, if there is any time to be to over explain things, now yeah. is that time. It's a very critical time. I think we're going to go into the first real recession for the U.S. economy since 2008. I mm-hmm. think a lot of things are going to happen as a result of that that a lot of people aren't prepared for are mm-hmm. really their portfolios aren't prepared for. So this is the time to over-explain. This is the time mm-hmm. to overanalyze. This is the time to really just be prepared for whatever is that's that's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. and we have a pretty good outlook on what we think is going to happen, but we always have to incorporate in our valuation calculus the uh, mm-hmm. the stagflation, tiny possibility outcomes as well. So I'm glad we talked about those mm-hmm. two. So great questions from the subscribers. Hope everyone's still enjoying this podcast. I am. I love getting together on Tuesday mornings and chatting <laughs> with Jared. It's the highlight yeah, and- of my Great. Well, it's a highlight of my week, too. I think it's a highlight for a lot of people's weeks right now, especially, like you said, it's keeping it's keeping people prepared. It's keeping people in the know. I think that's education is just as important in these times as anything else that we could be uh, handing out for our subscribers. Um, we want to thank everybody for listening. Again, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, please leave them in our comment section. We love to hear your feedback and the topics you'd like us to cover and also to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe and we will see you next week. Bye all.